goes to the woman and at the wo- the woman at the well, and he says, you know, she he, he says, give me a drink, and she, you know, um, th- there's the dialogue there, and and he says, I, I'm the living water, I'm, I'm the living one. He who drinks of me will never thirst. And so it got me thinking about this morning, because we're taking a little spur trail this morning from the book of John, but we still want to be connected to it. Um, so the, the question this morning is, what does it mean that Jesus, Jesus satisfies us? What does that, what does that mean? Because in, in John chapter 4, 5, and 6, there are multiple times where Jesus uses the language of, of water and bread and that, that, that's him. I'm the bread of life. He who eats of me will never be hungry. I'm the, the living water. He who comes to me and drinks will never thirst. And he says this multiple times. And he's using the metaphorical language. And we get what it means to eat and be satisfied. I think everybody's gone to Thanksgiving dinner, had their fill of turkey, and has been satisfied and then taken a massive nap all afternoon. So we, we understand that. But what does it mean when we apply it to Jesus? And more importantly, why, why is it that so many Christians come to Jesus and say, I profess faith in Christ and I believe in Him that He was, he, that he, he was the Son of God and He lived a sinner's life or in my stead and he was, uh, or He lived a perfect life under the law and He was crucified, dead, and buried, raised on the third day and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And I believe in that. And yet, on Monday morning, walk and are totally dissatisfied with life. Totally dissatisfied. Why is it that so often we, we come to Christ in that fashion? We have faith in Christ, but we're still hungry. We're still thirsty. Why is that? Why is that? And, and I think this is pointed because we live in a culture that is fascinated with being satisfied. Don't we? And, I mean, uh, let, me, let me define that satisfied first and give some examples from, from culture. So to, to be satisfied would be to fulfill a desire, to, to put an end to a need or a want, a desire. You have a perceived need. Here in about 30 minutes, your stomach's going to start grumbling. I'm hungry. There's a perceived need. I need Texas Roadhouse. I need... You know, uh, Los Mayas, I need, yeah, I mean, okay. You're like, Austin, hurry up. You know, come on, we're lunchtime. Okay, see, this is pointed. <laughs> no, I need that. I have a perceived need, and I'm not going to be satisfied until I fill my stomach. There's that perceived need. But this is true in, in so many cases in just the culture that we live. I mean, I mean think about this in, in the terms of, like, purchasing something. Online purchasing. If you've ever bought things online and, and working in the construction industry, uh, you know, I work in people's houses. It is amazing. Like the Amazon truck shows up at those houses like every day. And I mean, these aren't like just totally crazy rich people. I mean, these are just average ordinary people that, you know, they, they want something built in their house or, you know, it's, I mean, this is just average middle ca- class America. And uh, that Amazon Prime truck shows up, FedEx truck, you know, every day. And it's like, what's in the box, you know? And, and yeah, and, and I mean, I, I order stuff a lot on, online. So, you know, I, and I don't know about you, but let me, let me just take you through kind of this process and see if you can track with me. Because this is where my mind goes. 
Okay, I'm I'm surfing the web or something, and you know I I happen upon um you know a new tool or something, you know ad pops up, boop, ooh hey, that is pretty cool, no or or you know I know for maybe you guys will relate to that you know maybe ladies so there's a there's a blank hole in the house you know we need something to go here, a picture you know we need a piece of furniture we bought a new. Uh, entertainment stand that replaced a, one that we'd had that was little and tiny and belonged to my grandmother um, and, and we, we replaced it about several months ago you know but we we need something there surfing online all of a sudden boop, pops up <gasps> there was a need and, and that's going to fill that need and you get excited about it. you start thinking about it. you start doing research on it what do the reviews say is this is this am I going to have buyer's remorse and you doling out cash for this, or, or am I going to be satisfied? Is it going to do what it promises? You know, is the tool going to do all the cool things that I hope it's going to do? You know, is is the is the entertainment stand going to be sturdy? Is it going to be? Is it going to smash my kids' fingers? You know, is it going to do what I need? Is it going to be tall enough? Is it? You know, all of those things. Is it going to fill that need? Is it going to satisfy? And you get excited about it. You start thinking about it. And I don't know about you, but I'm the delayed buyer. Some people, it's like, boom, you know, speed up, let's swipe the card. You know, do it right there. For me, I'm the lagger in marketing terms. I think about it, process it. It's on sale. Do I buy it? Do I not? You know, and there's kind of this game that I play of, oh, I want to buy it. I like my money a little more. And, you know, and, and but it's a, it's a, am I going to be satisfied with that? You know, and I'll roll that out for a day or two. Sometimes I miss the sale and I kick myself, you know. But then I'm like, okay, well. All right, I'm going to pull the trigger. I'm going to I'm going to buy this thing. So I get back online and I've already memorized the web page, you know. I've like taken a screenshot and I'll I'll toy with myself and pull it up in the photos and oh, I'm going to buy that and put it back down. And oh, wait, 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 wait. And then all of a sudden I buy it. And I don't know about for you, but the moment that 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 I enter my information and, you know, credit card number and I hit send, my level of anticipation in regard to satisfaction begins to drop. It's almost like it's already mine, and I'm starting to become less satisfied than with what I built myself up to be. But I've still got some satisfaction I'm going to get from it. So I'm waiting, you know, UPS delivery is going to come. It's almost like Amazon's reinvented Christmas. You know, oh, it's a package at my front door. I get to open it. <gasps> I know what's in there, but I want to see it, you know, and I open it up. Here's the new tool, you know. But as soon as I open it up, that level of satisfaction begins to drop. And how many times do we do that and then something else replaces it? Something else replaces it. When you're driving down the road and, and, and an advertisement pops up, you're entitled to this. Here's a vacation in the, the Bahamas or, or whatever. You deserve this. You're not going to be satisfied until you're there. But we know when we're there, we may have a good time, but we're not satisfied. We're not satisfied with it. And this is, this is just the drumbeat of our, of our culture. You know? The loosening of moral boundaries that we, that we see. It's the idea that, well, these are restrictions on your satisfaction. Let's loosen these moral boundaries so you can be more satisfied. When in reality, there's dangerous consequences to that. Think about the, the LGBT movement. right? It, it's the, the idea that I'm not satisfied with with my body and its outward working in, in relationship to sexual satisfaction. And I want it to be something else. And I, and I won't be satisfied until it is that something else. What about for students that are in school, 
You got to get that career. Find that career that's, you know, that's going to just make you happy. Right? Find that career. And, and if you don't find that career, or you find the one that you think is going to make you happy, you get into it, and five years, it's no longer satisfying. Well, let's move to a different one. Go, oh, this one's going to make me happy. I like doing this. This looks good. I'm moving to that one. A couple years, we're going to move into this one. All of a sudden, it becomes a, 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 a Ryan's smorgasbord of, well, I'm just going to bounce around until I'm satisfied with the right career. Never actually landing. No. And this is this is this is our culture. And so I come this morning and I say this I think this message is timely because we face this daily, this question of satisfaction, but we really struggle with how does Jesus satisfy us? How does Je- how does Jesus how do we take of Jesus and he satisfies? So I want to say this is a theme that runs through John chapter 4 through 6. And what, what, what I'd like to do with this, we're taking uh, a spur trail, if you will, from the main trail of, of going through John. And we're going to take a spur trail off of this, kind of up to a high bluff, if you will. If you like hiking, just kind of follow this metaphor. We're going to go up to a high bluff. And we're gonna, I want to look over John chapter 4 through 6, okay, in a sense, um, in this theme of satisfaction and more specifically misappropriated satisfaction okay I'd encourage you maybe this afternoon your downtime read John chapters 4 through 6 okay read that and then ask the question what does it mean that Jesus satisfies in these chapters and then come back to Isaiah and look at Isaiah 53 54 and 55 and and just kind of overlap the two in that in that theme but let me let me kind of give you this rundown from John um, in in this this idea of satisfaction. So John chapter four, Jesus comes to the woman, uh, meets the woman at the well, and he says to her, "If you knew the one who was speaking to you, I would give you living water." Let me find that. Uh, Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of Jacob's well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Hear that? You're going to be satisfied. You drink of the water that I have, you're going to be satisfied. And she turns around and she says, give me this water. That's, That's great right there. So that I'll never thirst again. All of a sudden we're down here. So I'll never thirst again, and I won't have to make this trek of shame. Alan's going to get into that next week, so I won't, uh, I won't go there. <coughs> but she's, she's, she's uh, you know, well, we know who she is. <laughs> you know, she, but that's a trek of shame for her to go to the well. I don't want to have to make this trek of shame anymore. I don't want to thirst. Heighten my experience in this life. That's what you're offering to me. I want it. And we'll see, like I said, next week where Jesus goes. But she wants to be satisfied. But it's misappropriated satisfaction. So she leaves later. The disciples come back from gathering food, and they're encouraging Jesus, eat, eat, Jesus, eat. You need to be, you need strength. And Jesus takes the opportunity to say, I have food you don't know about. It's the will of my Father. I'm, I'm satisfied in doing the will of God right here in this in the Samaritan town so much so that I don't, I'm, I'm not looking to be satisfied with 
the bread or the fish or whatever you're, you're bringing. It's a teachable moment. It's a teachable moment. Later in John, J- Jesus then does a series of miracles. He does a series of, of, of miracles. He heals a government official or uh, a government official's son. Heals a lame man by the pool. And he, he does this and he heals the lame man by the pool on the Sabbath. And the Jews get upset about it. We're comfortable. We're satisfied in our moral religiosity. Keep the rules. Keep your dancing right here. You know, don't, don't do anything crazy. And Jesus, you're upsetting that system. You're upsetting that system, Jesus. We're comfortable, satisfied here. And what you're doing is upsetting that. They're saying we have life in keeping the law. Jesus says, you have no life without me. Later, Jesus feeds the 5,000 people. Before that, he then turns around and he says, look at the miracles that I've done. Those miracles testify of the greater purpose for which I've come. It's not just about healing sick people. It's not just about raising the dead. There's There's a greater satisfaction than just that. And, and the healings that are in there, and we read those stories, and, we, and we'll get to those, we'll see that that was, the, that was the overall effect on the people that were healed or, or that were involved in that. But later on, John chapter 5, Jesus feeds the 5,000 people. He feeds 5,000, then he moves to a different part of the lake, and those people follow him. And they follow him, and they go, how'd you get here? You know, and Jesus goes, I know your heart. You want more food. You want more food. And he says, work for the bread which doesn't deteriorate, basically. Work for to the, do the work for the bread of eternal life, essentially. And they said, well, okay, what do we need to do to do this? Right? Oh, you mean there's greater bread than just the bread you gave us? Hey, we'll do that. What do we need to do? He says, believe in me. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And the Jews grumble over this. They grumble and they complain. What does this mean? Him eat, we got to eat his flesh, drink his blood? That's metaphorical language for believing in, in Jesus. And they get upset and they leave. And the disciples, he turns to the disciples, as I read earlier this morning, and he says, you're not going to go away too? And Peter makes this profound statement. And he says, you have the words of eternal life. You see, the theme that's over that in satisfaction is the Jews and the people Jesus was speaking to and performing these miracles, so many of them were coming to Jesus so that he, with the expectation that he would heighten their experience in this life, make it more pleasing and less painful. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to do that. I didn't come to do that. There's a greater purpose that I came for and what it means for you to be satisfied. Jesus is saying, you need life. And the Jews are here saying, we're, we're alive. We've got a body. We're walking about. We're doing, the, we're doing the human thing. What we want you to do is heighten our experience of this life. So often that's what we come to Jesus for. And that's why we get dissatisfied. That's why we struggle to be satisfied in our Christian walk. So now back to Isaiah 55. We come through this. I got three three points, three exhortations from here. 
How does Jesus satisfy? Why are, why are we so easily dissatisfied? One, in, verse, in chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 55, verses 1 and 2. He says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? You've got this peculiar concept of somebody who's broke, but they're still earning wages and making purchases. And and here's 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 my explanation for that. The money that you have doesn't purchase. The money the money that you do have purchases that which is not of true substance. The money that you do have purchases that which is not of true substance. I think the Beatles captured this this concept well in their in their their old song "Money Can't Buy Me Love." Remember that. There's a line that says, say you don't need no diamond ring, and I'll be satisfied. Tell me that you want those kind of things that love or that money just can't buy. I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love, right? It, it, it's the, 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 the life that you need, what's the better thing can't be purchased by the, the, the standard currency. Right, I mean, and the Beatles got this in, in just a relational sense. You know, the, the satisfaction of, of the relationship between two lovers is, in, is categorically different than the relationship between me and material possessions, between me and tangible things that can be purchased with the currency uh, of, of our culture. Right? And, and, I, and I think in this sense... None of our efforts are going to secure satisfaction in this life. God's saying you were made to be satisfied. You're made to be sustained with water. You're made to have vitality and vigor and excitement, the wine. To be nourished and to grow. But that's not going to happen with, with any of your efforts. That's not going to happen. Because he's saying, what your greatest need is to be made right with me. Right? It's where Jesus goes. He says, I, I give you living water. She says, give me this water. He says, okay, go find your husband. In a sense, you look at that and go, well, he doesn't really explain what he means by water. But he does. He's saying, you want the living water, we've got to deal with your sin first. We've got to deal with your sin first. And I said, I'll leave that for Alan. But let me, let me show you kind of where this comes from, from uh, from Isaiah because Isaiah doesn't just plop down in chapter 55 and start there you got 55 preceding chapters and in the first 40 or so Isaiah is giving just scathing words to Israel in regard to their sin here's all of your sin and, God, and if you don't repent God's going to punish you he's going to bring about punishment which he eventually does with the Assyrians but that's the first section of Isaiah and then Isaiah starts to speak of hope. In Isaiah 55, we get this phenomenal chapter of the suffering servant, of the Redeemer, the one whom Isaiah says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising or, or the chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourges we were healed. He had this wonderful chapter that, for, that, that we have need of a redeemer, as Nathan spoke about to the kids earlier. He who, as Isaiah says in in verse 12 of chapter uh, 53, he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Isaiah says this suffering servant who's going to come, he's going to bear your sins. He won't stay dead like the sheep that you're used to slaughtering, like the goats and the bulls. Once they're slaughtered, they stay dead. This one will be different. He's going to come. And because of his piety, because of his character, because of his nature... He'll die the sinner's death, but the grave won't hold him. That I'll be satisfied fully in his sacrifice. So much so that I'll crown him. I'll allot him a portion with the great. And he'll divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death. See the picture of resurrection given in the Old Testament there? How fantastic is that? So Isaiah speaks of this. And then in chapter 54, he says, he says to you, Zion, to the people of God, he says, O barren one, you who have borne no child, break forth into joy, shouting and crying aloud. You have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Spare not the links of your cord and strengthen your pegs. Do you see what's happening there? Here, here, here's a woman, no family. And, and the picture is that God is saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not only just give you one son, I'm going to give you a plethora of a family. So much so that you're going to need to make this tent bigger. Your house is going to have to get bigger because you can't hold it. Here's the picture of the gospel coming in, redeeming the people of God, and the, and the people of God is expanding. The people of God is expanding. You so say, you're going to have to have a bigger house because it can't hold everyone I'm going to bring into this family. It says this in verse 3, chapter 24, or 54. He says, For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and re will resettle the desolate cities. The gospel's going to come in and it's going to grow through this Redeemer. And then we get to chapter 55. Here's the call of the gospel. Here's the call of the gospel. And this is where we, this is where we land here. And so what's needed is that Redeemer. Do you, do you see there? It's interesting that Isaiah, he doesn't say, come get this free gift that we have out here. No, come, come take the free gift of water, wine, and milk, of sustaining life, of exhilaration and excitement and joy and nourishment that's just sitting out on the table. He says buy. Well, if you buy something, there's a transaction that has to take place, right? There's a tra and yet he says you don't have any money. You, you don't have money to buy it, or at least the money that you do have is not good here. It can't purchase what's out here on this table. But the picture from Isaiah 53 to 55 is somebody had to purchase that. I don't know about you, but the only way you can buy something and receive whatever that is and call it a purchase, call it buying, is if somebody else actually pays the price. And yet here's what Christ did. Is he 
paid that price. He paid that price so that we might come to Him, that we might have life in Him. So often, though, we, we receive Jesus kind of like a ticket. Right? Here's your, here's your get into heaven ticket. Hang on to it and, and, uh, and present it at the gate when you get there. And go about your business and kind of figure out everything else until you get there. So we're sort of left in this no man's land of, well, what do I do now? I got the ticket into heaven. It's going to be good, but now what do I do? When in fact, you get Jesus. I'm borrowing this imagery from John Piper, by the way. No, it's not mine. So if it's good, you know, give him credit for it. If you don't like it, don't blame me. <laughs> but but I, I heard this in a sermon once, and it just opened my eyes to that. Am I satisfied with coming to Jesus for who he is and not what he can just offer me. So the application there is just what, what Isaiah says. He says, here's the exhortation. Come. Come. Come to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, come to him for the first time and pray, Lord, open my eyes that I would see him. We'll get to that in a minute. I don't know everybody's story, but I think everybody here professes to be a Christian, and, and I believe that you are. But if you're dissatisfied, do you come to Jesus every day? Not just do you sit down and have a short devotional and check that off, but do you lay hold of him? The same way that Jacob laid hold of the Lord, of the, uh, uh, the angel of the Lord and wrestled with him and said, Bless me. Bless me not because there's anything good in me, but because I want to glorify you. And my life and my own sin nature is going to fight against that today. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be tempted to fuss at my kids and dishonor you so that I can, so that I can have you know, a little bit of peace to myself to thumb through Facebook. Or, or I'm going to not say something to my coworker because they're struggling with something and I'm going to look at that and go, that's messy, I don't want that on me, so you keep that over here. When, when you're calling me to enter into their life and to speak the gospel into their life and I'm weak in that area, but help me to see the need and to step across that path, step across that bridge. Are you coming to the Lord daily? So oftentimes somebody says, I'm, just, I'm dissatisfied right now in my relationship with the Lord. And the next question I ask is, are you spending time with Him daily? Are you going to Him in prayer? Are you, are you in the Word so often the answer is, well, no. You can't drink from the fountain if you never go to the fountain. And the, song, the old song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, captures it well. It says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Come to Jesus. Come to Him and come to Him on His terms. So let me ask you, in, in regard to being satisfied on a regular basis, where does your mind go? Where does your energy go when you're stressed, when you're anxious? Where do your thoughts go that, that then turn around and kind of generate that, that emotional feeling of, ah, where do they go? Do, do they go to the next purchase? Do they go to the next package that's coming in the mail? That's my temptation. You know, I don't... I don't eat. I don't eat things to deal with anxiety. I'll buy stuff. No, where, where's it? Where's your mind go? 
Does it go to the cross? Does it, does it go to scriptures that you've implanted in your mind and your heart to remind you of the truth of who God is and who you are in relation to Him? Do you, do you come to the Father through the Son for satisfaction? Are you running somewhere else? Is Jesus your greatest need today? I'm not asking in an eternal salvation sense. I mean, I'm asking if you're a Christian, is he, he's still your greatest need today just as much as he was the day that you first professed faith in him. Do you come to Jesus? Secondly, listen to God. This is what we get in chapter in verses 2 and 3. Second part of, ver, uh, of verse 2. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. See, this isn't just a legal transaction that happens. There's a change of heart that occurs. I heard one theologian say, we live in the age of the ear. It's where the, the, the power of God and the, is the ability to change the heart occurs through the ear, happens through the proclamation of the gospel. Notice the connection here. He says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Listen so that you can take in what's good. And then in verse 3, he says a parallel verse he sa- or, or, or phrase. He says, listen so that you may live. In John 4, 5, and 6, you'll see the, the, a very similar pattern there of partaking of Jesus, the, the, the water and the bread. You've got to listen to his testimony of who he is, what he's come to do, so that you'll live. You need life. And everybody in those chapters is going, we're already alive. And Jesus is going, no, you're dead. You need life. Clearly, if Jesus is saying that, and he is who he says he is, and who the apostles found him to be, then when he says you need life, that means far more than what we think of it. Far more than just a good, pleasing experience now. And that life comes through abiding in the revealed will of God. The birth of that through, through the gospel. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6. He says, for we don't preach. Here's the, here's the word spoken that's received through the ear. Here's the gospel that's heard. If we don't preach Christ ourselves, but, or we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, here's the listening again, light shall shine out of darkness. This is what he said at the beginning of creation. Is the one who has shown in our hearts the, light, the, uh, the gift of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And this brings life to others. Because Paul writing to the Corinthians said our, our preaching of the gospel and living out in light of God's revealed will in your lives has produced genuine spiritual life in you. The, the veil's been lifted. and you're, you're seeing who you are in Christ. And you're, you're living that out. And we're seeing the fruits of the gospel coming to bear in your life. Elsewhere, Paul writes to the Romans. And he says, he says Romans 8, 20, 28 and 29, he says, God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. D. 
Do you catch that? He says he causes all things to work together for good. Sometimes we stop right there and go, great, I'm going to pray, you know, Lord, make this happen well for me on my own terms. We don't read the rest of it. He says my, my doctrine of election, which isn't there for us to just slap at people in conversation, it's for us to hold on to in the midst of despair. I'm going to keep you and I'm going to form you what? In the image of my son who was humble, who sought my will above his own. The, the goodness of God fashioning all things is that they work so that we become more like Jesus. Not so that we're more comfortable. Not so that we have less pain. This is, this is why it makes sense that Christians in foreign countries who are, under th- who are under threat of severe persecution would hold on to Jesus even at the loss of life. This is why the, the, the hearers of the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 when the writer writes to, to, to them and says, consider the old days when after having been enlightened you endured a great persecution and you joyfully accepted the seizure of your property joyfully accepted the seizure of your property because you had for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. This is how Stephen can stand up amongst the the Jews, give this bold proclamation of the gospel, and as they're stoning him, he's not going, I really wish I had not said that. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's how Hebrews 11, the the hallmark of faith, you have all of these all of these men and women throughout the ages who have looked to Christ as their greatest treasure and it's radically changed their, their lives. Where Moses, he, he, compl- he considered the fleeting treasures of Egypt as nothing. He could have been next in line to, to Pharaoh. He could have had everything. And yet God spoke to him. He believed and he wandered in the desert through the rest of his life. What sane person would do that unless you believe the promise of God and that what God's holding out is better? Is better. Paul writes to the the Corinthians too, and he says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Peter writes to to the brethren who are dispersed, and he says, the proof of your golden faith is tested through trial so that it may result in the praise and glory of God. We come to God and we listen to Him and we, we, our lives begin to align with His revealed will. Jesus becomes our treasure and our life looks peculiar, pe- peculiar to people who don't treasure Jesus. That's why so often we can get comfortable in our American Christianity and we look at people like in China or in these other countries who are being persecuted for their faith, and we'll, we'll you know, say, hey, that's great, that's great, but when we really, and we, and we praise them, but when the rubber meets the road and we really start to, to ask ourselves, Am I, would I, do I love Jesus that much? Or do I love the comfort that American Christianity affords me? I'll be honest, that's a hard, that's a hard canon for me to level myself. Because I'm, I'm afraid that the truth of, uh, of my daily walk is I'm more satisfied in my comfortable home, you know, in the safe job that I have, 
you know, in, in the health of my kids. I'm more satisfied in that than I am in my relationship with Christ. And, and I pray and I, Lord, I have to come, come to the Lord daily. I have to come to Him and say, Lord, change my heart. If that's the case, change my heart. Open, open my eyes to Your Word. I've got to be in His Word. I know when I'm not in here, and then as you know, I mean, I work a full-time job, you know, just like you guys do. And so, yeah, I know it's hard to spend time in the Word. I know it's hard because there's so many other things that are pulling us in other directions. But to lay hold of it and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carve out time here because, Lord, I need you. I need you to open my eyes so that I can see that Christ is my greatest treasure. I need to listen to what you're saying. And say, Lord, what does that mean for me? My relationships with my wife, with my kids, with you all, with my coworkers. We listen to the Lord. So let me ask you, are you listening if you're coming to the Lord, are you listening to what He's saying? Are you, are you not just listening and go, okay, well, let me work this out in some theological argument. What does this mean for me today? And the Lord says that wherever you are and you're reading through Scripture, whatever you're doing, you're coming to the Lord in His Word and in prayer, are you listening to what He's saying? And then the third one. Beholding the Son. Verses 4 and 5. Behold. You see this pattern? He says, come, 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 listen, 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 behold, behold, behold. Oftentimes the Old Testament, that word behold happens right before God makes a promise and then he's going to bring it to fulfillment later. Here's a promise, I'm going to bring it to fulfillment later. I don't have time to kind of work through all of that, but that's a, that's a good kind of Sunday evening digging of your own. You know, how does that relate? But he says, behold, I'm getting ready to do this and then I'm going to fulfill it later. So you keep your eye on it behold I've, uh, I've made him a witness to the peoples this is this is David who David's dead at this point by the way if you're following in the historical narrative David's dead so I've made him a witness to the nation so this becomes the Messiah it becomes Jesus because Paul in Acts chapter 13 points to this verse the blessings of David and says God's given Jesus these blessings. Christ is the fulfillment of the promises of the covenant that he's promised. Behold, I'm going to do this. I've done it in Jesus. So you see Jesus, you see God fulfilling those promises. So when we come to God poor in spirit, need of life that Jesus offers, and we listen to him, what do we? We behold his son. We see Christ for who he is, and he satisfies us he satisfies us because the promise of god and fulfilling the the covenants that he's promised become true in our own lives we're starting to see the new covenant come to come to bear in our in our lives those fruits are coming coming into play and we're interacting with other people the gospel's coming to bear and we're speaking the gospel to other people and we're we're seeing God bringing those things out. It doesn't mean that every person we speak the gospel to is going to receive it with open arms. Paul says to some people, the preaching of the God, our preaching of the gospel is the smell of death. But for others, it's life. You don't walk into the conversation going, you look like you're going to smell death today. You don't know. You, you don't know. Ananias was like, I'm not going to go see this guy Paul or who was Saul, because he kills Christians. 
And God says, I'm going to do something. You go and you watch. Okay. He didn't know. Is he going to get killed? Is he going to get thrown in prison? The Lord does a phenomenal work, opens the eyes of the most prominent first century Christian to then take the gospel to the nations. Paul turns from the Jews, Acts chapter 13 later, and he says, I'm going to take this to the Gentiles, and he does. And now all of a sudden the tents are expanded and the gospel goes to the nations. And the gospel, wonderful. Christ satisfies. We've been called to be a part of that. So the application of behold the Son. Look for God's hand in your life to bring about opportunities for you to be that overflowing fountain of water to others. When Jesus told the woman at the well, he who drinks of me will never thirst again, but I will out of him cause a fountain to overflow. I'm paraphrasing that, but you get the sentiment. That's weird water, isn't it? It's weird water that satisfies, but then it, it becomes a spring. I don't have any imagery for that at all. I don't have any example. No, no. So you kind of work on that. But you, you get the sense that the gospel that satisfies you then turns around and overflows to other people. I think there's a connection there with the, the fruit of love. That's a sermon for another day. But do you see that? That when Christ satisfies us, it doesn't stay here. It goes out. So when we behold the Son, we see Him and we treasure Him. That becomes an overflow of a fountain of life to other people. So let me close. How is Jesus satisfying to you? Are you, are you tempted to use Christ to acquire the things in this life that generally don't satisfy? Do you, do you look at that exhortation and say, you know, I, I want to survive. I need the water. I need, I need to survive. Nobody can survive without water. You can survive without wine and milk. can't survive without water. I want to survive, you know. Got to have money. Got to have a house. Got to have these things. Do you want excitement? Some vitality? Jesus maybe procures that for you. Do you want... Do you want nourishment? Say, I need intellectual stimulation and grow the milk. Because you're looking for those things in, in the everyday aspects of life. Now, those things are necessary. But Christ's picture for satisfaction is so much bigger than that. Are you coming to Jesus to be satisfied by the experience of life? Are you coming to Him because He's your greatest treasure? And life is then lived to glorify Him because of who He is. And you can say with Stephen, on, on that day when you meet Him face to face, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Whether that's tomorrow, whether that's 50 years from now. How does Christ satisfy you? Let me pray. I God, so much could be said here. I pray, Lord, your gospel's clear that we don't just chalk up our, our need f to be saved from our sins through the shed blood of Christ as an afterthought, as a, l l like a ticket. So well, I've done that. But we see it and we feel it daily. That the more we come to know Jesus, the more we see our need for His saving blood. 
that the, the more we will say as the song we sang, we have victory in the blood of Jesus. And we claim that every day. Father, pray that we would come to you. We wouldn't run to other things. It's how idols happens, how idolatry comes into being into our hearts. We would run to you daily. That we'd listen to you. We wouldn't come to you and say, okay, Lord, here's my agenda for the day. Can you make this happen? We come to you and say, Lord, Make me like Christ today. Help me to see that whatever you bring into my life that seems to upset my apple cart, that would look at it with the eyes of faith and say, Father, you're bringing me like Jesus. You're bringing me into your family. You're making me like Christ. You're fitting me for life with you eternally. Whether that's the small thing of a coworker who, who just disrupts our day and we're already having a tough time, or whether that's big, big picture news. You got cancer. Family members died. May, may we be quick to run to you. and Say, Father, this is, this is tough. This is hard. I'm struggling right now. But Father, help me to see that you're making me like Jesus. May we listen to you, Father, in seeing that you've revealed yourself to us in your Son, and may we see Christ. May we treasure Him. May we be satisfied in Him. I know that's a growing experience, Father. It's easy to say it. It's another matter to live it. Father, may you do the work in us that only you can do. Satisfy us with your Son. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you.